Yeah. Um, your expectations are way too high. Uh, let's lower the bar. Uh, let's just not get into heresy. How about that? Um, my name's Dave Tish, and when I was little, Darth Vader lived in my closet. I don't know why you're applauding. It's terrifying. Monsters also lived under my bed. I had to, if I wanted to go to the restroom in the middle of the night, I had to jump out of my bed and make sure and clear the, the, the bed because otherwise the, the, the monsters would grab me with their taloned hands and drag me underneath the bed. And the next thing in the morning, my parents would just find a bloody pair of Superman pajamas. That's all that would be left of me. That got dark. That got dark. Sorry. Um... The point is, when I was little, that's what I thought evil was like, you know, just Darth Vader and and scary monsters. Now, when I was in high school, I saw the scariest movie that I had ever seen in my life. It was a movie called Alien. No, don't woot. Do Do not friend me on Facebook. Do not friend me on Instagram and send me funny pictures. I will unfriend or unfollow you instantly. This stuff is so scary. It terrifies me. So when I was a senior in high school, my, uh, uh, I'm from Ohio, which is a great place to be from. Ask LeBron. The point is, <laughs> I moved out here, because that's what people from Ohio who are smart do. And uh, I moved out, and when I was in high school, I had a, uh, our, our high school choir went down to um, Disney, Disney World down there, and they performed in this big choir thing. And while we were there, we went to Universal Studios and in Disney World, and it was really fun, and, and it's weird to say Disney World. It, can I just say that? It's just weird now that I've been in California for a while. But anyway, we were in Disney World. We went to Universal Studios and had all these rides, right? They had all these rides, and we're all there. And I'm like, woohoo, this is so fun. We're all there as a big group, and we're just hanging out, and we're just, you know, having fun. And they have this one, like, kind of, uh, you know, monster ride. And so, you know, go through, and then there's, like, the, you know, the T-Rex from, you know, Jurassic Park. You're like, whoa! the T-Rex, and then there's Jaws, and you're like, big shark, haha, <laughs> and we're there, and so it was really fun, and we're there, and they had the, uh, they had the cart, you know, they had all the, the roller coaster, and there was two, and there was this girl, Layla, and like all day, I've been trying to like finagle it so that, it, it, oh, look, cart number six is open, it's just you and me, Layla, <laughs> you know, but so... That's what I was going for. So I'm sitting next to Layla. We're going through the ride, and there's like T-Rex. Oh, it's so scary. And then there's a big, you know, shark. Rah, rah. And then there's like King Kong. Oh, no, not King Kong, you know. And then it kind of goes into the space locker and gets real quiet. What's going on? And then the fog kind of comes out. And I kid you not, right like next to me, like right here, the whole thing stopped. The cart stopped, and this alien kind of came out. So I screamed. I screamed like a 13-year-old at a Taylor Swift concert. I mean, I was so terrified. They had the restraining lap belt. I like broke it. I stood up out of sheer terror. The adrenaline was... I stood up. I broke the lap bar. The gear stripped. I climbed over Layla. The ride stopped. The lights came on. A voice came on. Please get back inside the cart. And I'm like, I will get back in the cart when you put that thing away. In space, no one can hear you scream, but you could hear me scream in central Florida. 
The point is, for the longest time, I thought that's how evil worked. If evil were to ever show up in my life, it would be instantly recognizable. I would be able to see it. I would be able to run from it. And I would know that it was evil, and I would fly away from it. That's how I thought from movies and TV and from being a kid. That's what evil is. But if the Bible is to be believed, and I believe it is, and if Jesus' words are to be believed, and I believe they are, then that's not how evil works. In the beginning, very early in the story, in the book of Genesis, God actually comes to Cain and Abel. I mean, there's the, you know, the story, and he comes to, to Cain, and he says, Sin is crouching at your door like a wild animal. And then later on, Peter actually uses this incredible analogy. He says that uh, the evil that, that, that walks around this earth is like a roaring lion, a prowling lion looking for someone to devour. Now, why use this kind of language about big cats? I think it's because if a big cat is stalking you, they do most of their hunting by stealth. If they do it right, you don't even know. You just wake up dead, right? That's, that's how big cats hunt in stealth, not in obviousness. There's something to be said here. There's a, a moment in Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about a particular subtle danger that threatens the very spiritual life of someone. He throws it out there, and it was so remarkable that three gospel writers, Matthew uh, Peter, whose gospel is Mark, and Luke all recorded it in their gospels. And they said, this, this, this type of subtle predatory sin, this, 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 this evil, is stalking you. And you're, you might not be aware of it. Now, this isn't popular to talk about, but we're going to get into it. It's in the, the text. It's the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. We're going to read the story, and then we're going to get right into it. I'm going to read it. And uh, then we're going we're gonna, to uh, kind of dissect it and kind of see, because the story should send us shuddering. Matthew 19, the rich young world. Now a man came to see Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who's good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? Jesus says. Now, this is fascinating. This guy comes up to Jesus. He's very put together. He's rich. He's young. He's a ruler. So he's like an ancient day Elon Musk, if you will, and, and I will. He was powerful. He was smart. He had stuff going on. He was Uh, politically connected, so he had that. He had civic engagement. He had money. He was good at business. I mean, this is guys together, but he comes with humility and asks Jesus, and he says, there's something off. Now, I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe he felt um, not right. Maybe there's an emptiness. Maybe he saw Jesus teach with an authority that was bigger than any civil government, any political government, or any money uh, business that he'd ever seen. Maybe there's something going on inside him. Maybe there's a yearning inside of him. Maybe he felt off. Have you ever felt just off. You know what I'm talking about? You, you, things might seem to be going well, but something's not right, deep. And as Jesus spoke, maybe something resonated with him. My wife, before she came to Christ, said um, in her 20s, she said, I felt like I was not at home in my own skin. You ever felt that way? 
Of course you have, you're in church, but the, you know the point, that this is what's going on. This is what the rich young ruler comes to Jesus with a certain amount of humility and asks him, what am I supposed to do? And then Jesus says, following things, um, do not murder, do not commit adultery. And, and he says, um, uh, but, but, uh, obey, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. And so he says, which one? Now he's talking, of course, about the Ten Commandments that would have been part of the Mosaic Law, which would have been part of Jewish instruction for years and years and years. And that's, that's exactly And then, so this rich young ruler says, which ones? Like, are there ones in particular I should pay attention to? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, love your neighbor. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? At this point, Jesus knows that this guy is in trouble. So Jesus pivots, and he presents a test to this young man. And he says, okay, you think you're good, I'm going to give you a test. Now here's the thing. If you pass the test, you are good. If you fail the test, you're still good, because you'll know you've failed, and then I will be there to pick you up and help you. Do you see? Jesus is beautiful in this, because the test, whether you fail or pass, it's still good news. If you pass, you're good with Jesus, and you're good and if you fail, Jesus will say, see, and then he'll help. Do you see what's going on here? And it says in, in, in Peter's gospel, and I think Peter put this in purposely, in the, in the gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus, before he said this, he looked at the man and loved him. Do you remember that little nuance? So Jesus is saying these hard words to this young man, not because he's cruel or mean, but because he loves him. Sometimes, parents, you have to say hard, harsh things to your children for their sake, because cancer is serious, especially spiritual cancer, which means it's possible for us to say very difficult, painful words to one another in love, in love and kindness. That's not very popular, but it's true. It's, it's possible. Jesus proves it again and again. His voice is that way. And so he says this, and I think what's going on here is Jesus says, he says to him, here's the test, and this is what Jesus says. He says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be right with God, if you want to be right, right standing with God, go and do this. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, deeply grieved, is the, the word in Greek, for he had great possessions. Now people think that this text is about money. And this is the de facto prescription for Jesus for everyone, but it is not. Jesus doesn't ask anyone else in all of his encounters to give away all their possessions. Even the guy Zacchaeus, the evil tax collector who was ripping people off, he doesn't even ask that. Zacchaeus just gives back like double what he, he came back. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is not prescriptive, but there is something deeply true going on here. But in order to understand this, I think this text in Matthew 19 directly ties back to the 10th commandment in, given back in Exodus. Now let me explain why. For those of you who don't remember all the 10 commandments, who don't have them tattooed on your arm, thanks for that. Okay, um, here's the 10th commandment. It's the final commandment. And I think that this text in Matthew 19 ties directly to this commandment. Let me explain why. And we're going to have to do a little bit of work on here, but I, I, it ties. 10th commandment says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or his male servant. There's a pool boy joke in there somewhere. I can't find it. <laughs> his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is what this text says. Now, covet, right? 
covet. You shall not covet any of these things. Now, the 10th commandment is really weird. It's a weird commandment. First of all, we don't use the word covet very often. We just don't. So we have to understand what the word covet means. The word covet is the word hamad. It's a a Hebrew word, and it means to see or to desire greatly. And then it has the implication that to see or desire something greatly that's not yours, obviously. Does that make sense? Now, this word hamad appears very early in the story. It appears very early in the story and is a very, very important word. I want to show you where it first appears in Genesis 3. On page 3 with the talking snake and the temptation... There's this moment where Adam and Eve are there in the garden. God's created everything. And then the serpent comes to Eve, and it says this. When the woman saw Hamad, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also Hamad for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate some. This is an important word, isn't it? Because this is a crucial, crucial pivot point in human history. We see, we desire, and then what do we do? We take we grab, and we don't trust. We don't trust that God will give, that he is good. And the serpent comes in and says, is God really good? Is he really to be trusted? You need to grab in order to get yours. And this is human condition, right? This is the human condition. This is terrible. This is, this is the word see, to desire, and to grab. This is what this means. So this word hamad is very, very important to the biblical story, to the narrative of the Gospels, to the narrative of the Old Testament, to the narrative of the Bible, and to us. This word covet is weird. It means to see, desire, and then it it leads to, if given birth, it leads to taking, which is, of course, the, the crucial awfulness of everything. But it goes even further than this because the word hamad, the word covet is not a word we use all the time. You, you don't hear people say the word covet. It's, it's a strange word. It's not like you walk into your office and you have, Jim, oh, I covet thy cinnamon raisin bagel. No, Dwight, repent thee, lest thee burn. Oh, Panera, why dost thou vex me so? Thank you. Uh, you don't see that. The word covet doesn't happen all the time. You don't see, but there is another word that it is translated. The word covet is translated multiple times in the Old and New Testament as the word greed. Now, greed we understand. Greed gets a little bit to the core of the thing, doesn't it? See, this is why words are so important. That's why I was an English teacher. I'm sorry, there's no math in this sermon at all. None. Don't woot. There's some engineers in here. This is Silicon Valley, all right? Let's not turn the audience against us. The word covet, this word hamad, is, is translated often the same as the word greed. Okay, so that means that covet, to see, desire, to take, is tied to greed. Okay, we're getting somewhere. But here's the problem in Silicon Valley. We, uh, the, you, you, you've seen this, right? Greed is not even seen as bad. 1980s, it started. Gordon Gecko, right? Greed is good, exactly. You know what this is. We, we've built our modern economy on greed. This is not great. So we don't even see greed. So greed as a thing is actually very difficult because greed is actually an internal disposition, not an external action, which means the 10th commandment is weird. All the other commandments, practically all of them, are external actions. Don't make an idol. What's an idol? Something you make. 
Don't work on the Sabbath. If you work on the Sabbath, what is that? That's an action. Don't murder. That's an action. Don't commit adultery. That's an action. Don't steal. That's an action. Don't dishonor your mom and dad. Those are actions. Do you see how all these are actions? Stealing and theft and bearing false witness in a court of law. These are all actions. But greed, greed's not an action per se, is it? It's an internal disposition. It's deeper than that. It's not an action. It has to do with what's going on inside your heart. So the word covet and the word greed are tied together, and they're tied somehow into your heart. Now, what's weird about this is the first commandment also has to do with your heart. Don't have any other gods ahead of me. That has to do with what you worship, where you put your hope, your trust, your religious affections. That has to do with your heart, too, which means that the first and the tenth commandments are kind of tied in a weird way. It's almost like a, a verse, chorus, 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 verse. There's a poetry to the Ten Commandments because it goes internal, external, 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 internal. There's a thing and, and of course, later on, Jesus would talk about this very clearly. But in order to continue on about this idea about coveting and greed and how it's an internal disposition, we have to turn to the most famous album cover in the history of rock and roll. A couple years ago, Rolling Stone magazine had a poll of the most famous, iconic album covers in the history of rock and roll. Now, some of you in the room are like, what's an album cover? To which I would say to you, it's like a CD cover. And some of you in the room are like, what's a CD? And to you, I say, shut up. <laughs> so, I'm going to show you some iconic album covers, the top three, top four. Let's see if you recognize any of them. Some of you in the room might. Some of you might be fans of rock and roll. Here's the first one. Anybody know what it is? Abbey Road, right, exactly. A famous, iconic. Now, why is Paul not wearing shoes? Paul, you can step on some glass. We can't have you getting tetanus. What's going on here? Uh, famous album cover, right? Super famous, iconic, right? Uh, another one, uh, this one from the 80s. Anybody? Yeah, anybody? Yeah, Bruce Springsteen. This album cover got started because someone said, I love Bruce Springsteen, but... All right, um... <laughs> Uh, this one from the 90s, uh, maybe some, this is an iconic album cover from the 90s. Any, uh, any hip-hop fans up in, up in here? No? No, but, no, okay. <clears throat> Again, uh, the, this album cover juxtaposed against the content is super fantastic. Um, this is one of the most fa uh, famous ones, uh, uh, perhaps of all time. Um, anybody recognize this one? Some of you are like, I don't appreciate you put a naked baby up on the screen. I don't think we should see baby penises. It's not appropriate. <laughs> they actually reshot this uh, a couple of months ago because it was the twenty-somethingth anniversary. Which makes uh, this is this that same baby now. Um, <laughs> I feel really old. Uh, but th none of those were the most famous. The number one most famous album cover in the history of rock and roll was this one. Anybody recognize it? Yeah. All right, Pink Floyd, right? I heard somebody go, yeah, whenever somebody's like really excited about Pink Floyd, I get a little nervous. Because you know, they probably did drugs. I'm not wrong. 
I'm not wrong. It's a, I'm a little nervous. Anyway, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, right? Most uh, iconic. Now, here's, here's the thing. This is going to sound re- weird. I think this album cover actually perfectly, beautifully encapsulates the story, the entire narrative of Scripture. Now, let me explain. It starts off with this white, pure line. Now, that represents the Old Testament and the way that God, with his pureness and his bright light, broke in from heaven, an outside source of information, an outside thing from the sun, a beam of light from this existent, non-created, beautiful thing that comes piercing into the world, allows us to see everything about God. He reveals himself through the Old Testament, through his interactions with people, through the story, through his law, through his voice. He comes in and actually changes the game of humanity with the bright white light of his truth and his goodness and his character and all those things. He comes in. And then in the center of this screen, the most important part of this picture and the most important part of scripture is this prism. And that prism represents Jesus. Jesus is not just the Messiah. He's not just a prophet. He's God's very own son. He is God himself. He and the, he and the Father have the same genus, the monogenes. They have the same essence. And he, Jesus is God. And he comes in, and he takes the Old Testament, he comes in and he clarifies. He takes the teachings, the understandings of who God is, and he pulls them apart and reveals the truth that is inside of them. He pulls them apart and explains and articulates and clarifies So in a real way, this is kind of the Old Testament, this is Jesus, and this is the New Testament. This beautiful rainbow color, Jesus pulls apart the light and shows us all sorts of things. He he emphasizes some things, de-emphasizes others, pulls apart, teases, reveals. He is the revealed word of God living on earth, and he shows us the depth of the Old Testament, the depth of his Father, the depth of what's really going on. For example, in the Old Testament... There's these rules in the Old Testament, and the Ten Commandments is, is about adultery. Jesus comes along and says, adultery is bad, but it goes even further than that. I'm going to pull apart this beautiful stream. I'm going to pull apart this bright, white, shining light about adultery. And he says it's not just about adultery. It's about something even deeper. If you have lust in your heart, you actually commit adultery. Do you see how Jesus takes it and pulls it apart and makes it even deeper? In the Old Testament, there's this thing about murder, Right? Don't murder, don't kill another person. But Jesus pulls it apart and says, oh, it's so much more than murder. If you have bitterness and contempt for your brother and call him or her a fool, it's the same. Your words, your attitudes, your behaviors towards your brother, towards your sister, they have the same. So you see how Jesus is clarifying this. Now here's what's interesting. One of the primary macro points, themes of the Old Testament is this word, idolatry. You've heard this word. It's massively important. It means worshiping something other than God. In the Old Testament world, it was a myriad of gods and a myriad of golden things and a myriad of created things. You've seen this again. Idolatry is a huge idea. Jesus does not speak about idolatry very much. Hardly at all. But he speaks about idolatry all the time. Because in the Old Testament, idolatry is the thing. But in the New Testament, Jesus talks about money again and again. Why? Because money has become the new form of idolatry. 
Money is the thing that which people give all of their efforts to. Money is that which can control my future. Money is what gives me security. Money is what gives me comfort and safety. Money is that which I seek and give myself to to control the world. Which means this word hamad, covet, is tied to greed, which is tied to money, which is tied to idolatry. It's a, do you see you keep going lower and lower and deeper and deeper into this? This is deep stuff. For Jesus, money represents a dangerous spiritual threat, not because money is bad. Money is not bad. Money is neutral, but because of what it can do to the human heart. Money can corrupt a human heart because it can become an idol which means that this word covet is tied to greed, which is tied to money, which is tied to idolatry. Now, some examples. The problem with money is it can destroy you whether you have it or whether you don't have it. If you have it, it can lead to incredible arrogance. It can lead to pride where you believe that you actually can control and solve most of the world's problems. It can lead you to believe that you're better than other people because you have money, even though you were basically born on third base, and you go through life thinking you've hit a triple. But, th- I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. Like, I'm an adopted kid who was in an orphanage for a long time. I was adopted by an upper-middle-class couple. It could have been very different. And it could have been very different for you if you were just born at a different time in history or a different longitude and latitude. Clothes, food, An accident of longitude and latitude gave you what you have. But some people go thinking they're actually superior to other people because of their work ethic. Self-reliance. Money can cause us to actually believe to our core that we can solve all the world's problems because money can solve lots of problems, can't it? But there are some problems money can't solve. And you know this as well as I do. It can solve a lot of them, but not all. It can lead to control issues. People hold on to their money because they want to hang on to control, because money allows us to control things in our lives. And here's the problem with money. It can lead, it can lead to an insatiable lust for more. Now, do you see that there's not a dollar sign attached to that? How much is more? Do you see the insidiousness of that? More always is unsatisfied. How much money do you need? More. Do you see how that can destroy a human being? But money isn't just destructive if you have it. Money is destructive if you don't. If you don't have it, it can lead to jealousy. Why don't I have it? It can lead to murderous envy. People kill for money. It can lead to such a bitterness that people actually kill for it. It can lead to bitterness toward other people and to God. Why didn't you give me more money? I work just as hard as so-and-so, and I'm sitting here struggling to pay my bills, and they happen to have, and it can lead to this incredible bitterness. It can also lead to the opposite of that, which is worry. Worry it can be a constant companion for people without money because they worry about what's going to happen next. And worry is a terrible companion. And it can lead to anxiety about the future. It can lead to a lack of trust in God and his provision. And it can lead to people overworking to try to get more money because if they just have more money, then they'll be secure and things will be okay. So do you see how money can destroy you whether you have it or you do not have it? Because it's not about money. It's about something much, much deeper, what we trust in. 
what we believe in. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other or hate one and love the other. He says money is a terrible master. And he's basically saying this can lead to idolatry. And, and, and money is, is, is fine. It's a good thing. But it's a terrible first thing. Do you see? Jesus also says this. I think this is curious. Um, um, in Luke 12, Jesus said, Watch out! Be on guard against all kinds of greed, all kinds of covet, all kinds of kamad, right? Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. Why does Jesus say watch out? Because greed is invisible. It's internal. It's not an action. Notice he doesn't say, watch out, you don't accidentally commit adultery. Watch out, you don't accidentally lie in a court of law against your brother. Watch out that you don't accidentally work on the Sabbath. Why? Because you don't accidentally do any of those things. Those are purposeful actions. But greed is invisible to us, and it is insidious. Jesus is trying to give us some warning signs. So he comes to this man, idolatry, which is tied to money, which is uh, greed, and it's really idolatry of money. So, so coveting and, and, and this word hamad is t- tied to greed, which is tied to money, which is tied to idolatry. Now, what's idolatry? Here's an idol is anything you say, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant. Then I'll feel secure. So do you see how this is really not even about money anymore? This is about something much, much deeper. This is at the core of what we trust in, of what we believe in, about what we put our hope in. This is very deep work that Jesus is trying to do in this man, this rich young ruler. And what happens to this guy? Jesus says, watch out. The guy turns, stares Jesus in the face, and then turns and walks in the opposite direction. He walks away from Jesus. Evil is not obvious like a demon bat with blood-soaked fangs. Evil is when Jesus says, don't trust in your money. And you say, no thanks, and turn and walk the other way. Evil is when Jesus says, would you trust me? And you say, no thanks. Ah, this should scare us. This is a sobering story. For a person to turn and walk away from Jesus? Sobering. So what do we do? How do we avoid falling into this trap? So here's the weird thing about it. Greed's so invisible. I remember as I was preparing for this message, uh, I'm going through this, and I was just like, this is really scary. So where in the world, God, do I have idolatry? And I remember thinking, I don't really struggle with greed. Because I'm stupid, right? (laughs) So um, this is the hard part. Um, Here's three questions that have been helpful to me recently in my life with the help of spiritual directors and pastors to try to help me stay healthy and keep my mind on things. Here are three questions that when, or statements that when they arise up in me, I know that I've got a problem and I can begin dealing with it by taking these fears, these concerns to God. So these are three statements. Mileage may vary. 
Only one of them might apply to you. None of them might apply to you. You might be fine with this. But these are three statements that have helped me. First, when I say to God, I wish you had made me different, I'm on the edge of coveting. I envy other people's gifts. I envy other people's platform, their success, their wealth. And I think if I just had those things, I was a youth pastor for years, a high school teacher for years and years, and I see this all the time with young people, especially young ladies, who, because of the nature of our current media and because of the nature of Instagram and comparison, there's hardly any young woman I know who feels as though she has been beautifully and wonderfully made by God and is secure in that because the assault on her worth of young ladies is ubiquitous and unrelenting. I know so many young women who say, I wish God had made me different. Where does this come from? I don't know. But it's not a God. I wish you'd made me different. I saw this all the time in classrooms with my students who were from immigrant families. And tremendous pressure placed on them by their family of origin to be a certain type of person, a certain type of student, a certain type of achiever. And they knew to their core that maybe their brother or their sister was that, but they were not. The problem with comparing a monkey to a fish is you can say, monkey, why not, why don't you climb trees faster, but why aren't you good at swimming? And this is death to their soul. God, I wish you'd made me different. When I start asking that, when I start saying that, I've got real problems. And this is the idea here. If I had been made different, perhaps, then things would have been okay. We speak all the time to high schoolers and junior hires about this issue. Second question. When I say to God, what you've given me is not enough. When I say this to God, I know that I'm on the edge of coveting. Because what I'm saying to God is if I just had that thing, if I just had whatever that is, then I'd be okay. Basically what I'm saying, God, I like you okay, but what I really need is for you to give me that thing. And whatever that thing is, that's my idol. You see? Because then you're just using God to try to get to the thing, whether it's platform or success. Sometimes these are good things. Um, the hardest one on this is folks that struggle with infertility, right? They want a family. Somebody who struggles to get married. Those are good things. But to say, God, if I don't have that thing, then I can't ever be happy. We're in trouble. That's a dangerous place to skate on. We have to do some hard work about what we believe. It's hard. and It's easy for me. I've got kids. I know. And you're, you're like, that's easy. But it's, it's hard. I'm not saying this is easy stuff. What you've given me is not enough. And then lastly, God, you aren't enough. Somehow, having a relationship with the God of the universe is not sufficient. I need something else. When I begin to do that, I'm on the edge of coveting. So, three sentences that have helped me 
get back centered. Maybe that'll be helpful to you. I'm just going to go through them real quick. The worship band's going to come. They're going to sing. We're going to sing some songs. But the first one is this. God, how you made me is enough. Just a general prayer to God that says, I am made fearfully and wonderfully. I'm not a mistake. My gifts and talents were purposely given to me by you for the betterment of those around me who love me, for my family, for my coworkers, for my extended family. You've made me well. How you made me is enough. Number two, God, what you've given me is enough. I will be faithful with the plot of land you have entrusted to me, and I will plow it faithfully, and I will till it faithfully. Whatever is in front of me, whoever is in front of me, I will love them well. I will serve them well. I will do my job well. Whatever is in front of me, God, I don't need more. I don't need a wider reputation. I don't need more wealth. I will be faithful to what you have given me. What you've given me, God, is enough. Honestly, God, you and me is enough. God, somehow, I believe to my core that I need something other than you to be truly happy. This lie sneaks in a thousand times a year. And the reminder must be again and again not to compare to other people. Just to say to God, you and me, that's enough. You're doing something else with other people. It's not my business to compare. I don't care what you've given them. You've got your own story with those people. Those story and your relationship with them is them and their story. I will focus on what you are doing and calling in me right now. Those people, they're your other kids that have other issues. And parents, you know this. You deal with your children differently because your children are very different. And what they need is very different. And what they need from you is very different. And so why is it different with God? It is not. So you say to God, God, whatever it is that you have with me, right now, you and me, I will be as devoted as I can with you. I will be as faithful as I can to you. Not because I can, not because it's on my effort, because you have been devoted and faithful to me. And I know that and I trust that. God, you are good. We must say this to ourselves probably a thousand times a year. So as we close, maybe just look at these three. These three questions, statements, prayers. Maybe one of them resonates with you right now. Maybe one of them jumps out at you. Maybe one of them is one you need to do a little bit of work with God. Maybe one of them is what you need to say to God. So let's bow our heads and close. And let me pray for us and for me and for you. Jesus, we are a people who see that which is desirable and we try to grab, we do not trust you will give 
Our hearts are prone to idols of all forms, shapes, and sizes. We wander from you again and again a thousand times. And we need your help because we know there is no life. There is no life there. We also know that you are good. That you will not withhold from us that which we need. You will not. Because you are a good and loving father. And you prove that on the cross when your son went through what he did. We need to look no further than that. That is proof enough that you are good and you withhold no good thing from us. Help us be people who do not covet the stories, lives, or things of others, but instead focus on your overwhelming goodness to us. May it be so.